0: How do you you react, how do you react when you feel like you're not making progress? Maybe that's with your uh, work, school, health. You know the way that you should be going, but you keep hitting obstacles and even sometimes it's really clear you're not going anywhere forward you're not even staying neutral maybe you're even regressing maybe you're going backwards how do you react when you feel like you're not making progress in Psalm 77 we have a psalm a song of worship written by Asaph Asaph was David's right-hand man in the worship at the at the tabernacle he's clearly agonized before God in his prayers. It doesn't seem like in all the exertion that he's pouring into prayer that he's getting any traction at first. He keeps crying out for God more and more for deliverance of some kind. But it seems like things just get worse and worse before they get better. And then eventually gets to this point where he's burdened by questions he doesn't know how to answer. And it seems like he reaches a threshold and it's hard to even pray anymore. How do you react when you feel like you're not seeing progress, help, hope in your spiritual life? and having done all that you think you're supposed to do to pray, how do you pray when you feel like you can't pray anymore? That's the question Psalm 77 is able to answer for us. How do you pray when you feel like you can't pray anymore? In Psalm 77, Asaph catalogs his own regression in prayer to a place of grief. And then at a moment, we see that he makes a choice so that he can cooperate with God into an ascension out of grief and into hope. In our time together, we want to track the regression of his prayer into grief and then see how he's able to make a choice to ascend out into hope. We see the first regression from verse 1 to verse 3. And helpfully, Asaph has organized this psalm for us in four sections that are each broken up by that liturgical phrase, Selah, or apparently Salah, uh, Femi's taken Hebrew I haven't so we'll go with Femi's version Salah the first regression we see from verse 1 to verse 3 let's read it again it says to the choir master according to jedithan a psalm of Asaph I cry aloud to God aloud to God and he will hear me in the day of trouble I seek the Lord in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Salah. The first regression we see is Asaph's prayer moves from vigor into fatigue. Really quickly, you can see the, the urgency, the fervency that Asaph has in his prayers. He's crying out, lifting up. And it seems like we see the motivation of his prayer in verse 1 to have such vigor. He's motivated with assurance that God will hear him. I cry aloud to God aloud and he will hear me. He was constantly seeking God day and night in a time of trouble. And his posture of prayer was, was, was physical. He was stretching out, reaching his hands out to God and and not putting them down night and day he was extending and reaching out so as if to say god i won't put my hands down until you reach your hands out and pull me up from this and he's so persistent that it looks like he's getting to this point where maybe he needs some kind of respite, some kind of rest, some kind of comfort. Maybe, the, maybe he needs to eat and he's refusing to eat. Maybe he needs to sleep and he's just refusing to sleep. Whatever it is, he has such vigor and he won't stop until he gets an answer. but he finds out really quickly that he can't sustain this. He tries to remember, but all that happens is he just moans. He tries to meditate, and he can't. His spirit, his inner self, just starts to faint. There's no indication how long it took for him to get from vigor to to fatigue. I don't know how long this took, but what it seems like is it seems like he bolted out of the blocks like it was a short 100-meter dash without realizing that this was going to be a long-distance 42K marathon. His vigor evaporated, and everything that he was pouring out retreated in with exhaustion. Have you felt that before in your own spiritual life? I I know I have. How did he hit such a wall? How did he become fatigued? Asaph had a sense of assurance that God would hear him. And I think that is the motive to why he just put it all out on the line. But I, I think we'll see as we go through the rest of this prayer... I think we'll slowly see that maybe he was presuming on God to hear and answer in the way that he expected rather than wait on on what God expected. Maybe his expectations were misaligned from what God's will actually was for him. We'll see this slowly be revealed as the psalm goes on. When things don't pan out the way we expect God to unfold them in our lives, we can get frustrated by it. We can become weary and faint by it. You don't expect your own spiritual sanctification to be still here, still now. You don't expect your marriage to be where it is. You don't expect your relationship with your kids to be where it is. You don't expect that friendship that should be reconciled now to still have strain within it, and you're asking God for change, and can be exhausting this isn't uncommon for sincere and mature followers of Jesus it's not abnormal it's not abnormal to get faint when we don't see God intervening the way we think he would because we are so different and unlike God and it's hard it's like a little boy in a tin boat going out into the sea, and thinking that you'll find the end pretty soon, but every morning, after every morning, all you see is the same horizon. The ways of God are inscrutable and unsearchable. He is infinite and we are finite. And when we don't see change the way we want to see change, well, Isaiah 55, it kind of explains this, The holiness of God's ways that are so differentiated from ours. Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. neither are my ways, uh, your ways, my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In the limits of our understanding before a limitless God, it's not surprising that we become faint. If you feel faint in the things that you're bringing before God, Christian, know that it's not abnormal and you're not alone or only human. But if moaning and groaning is all that you have, don't give up. Take heart. Because the scripture reminds us that that's the very place where the Holy Spirit intervenes to intercede in our weakness. He can take your moaning and groaning if that's all you've got And bring it before God. And that's all God needs. So if you feel fatigued, don't give up. But for Asaph, the absence of an answer when he thought he had assurance, it kept gnawing at him. And it still gets a little worse before it gets a little better for him. He starts to ask some critical questions. Critical meaning like, criticizing questions about God. His exhaustion then becomes coupled with a sense of frustration and he starts to vent it out against the Lord. The first regression is he moves from um, vigor into fatigue and then he moves from this assurance into grief. Verse 4 to verse 9, look at it with me. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger? Shut up his compassion. Salah. He's not refusing comforts anymore. He wants them. Even if it's just a good night's sleep. But even that escapes him in his frustration for this sleeplessness, he turns at it against God. God, it's one thing for you to not answer me like I presumed, but now it's like I'm so, my, I'm so heavy that my eyes just want to close, but it feels like you're not letting them shut. It's not enough now that you won't answer me, but you're also just not letting me rest. And now, Moaning and groaning is even just too much for him. He can't even let out like a a sound through his mouth. He can't even speak. It's too much pain. Well, he's not giving up though. If I can't sleep and I can't speak, maybe I can just, maybe I can meditate. Maybe I can think in my own mind and that'll comfort me. He already did that once before. And all it led him to was more fatigue. It didn't change anything. So instead of trying to meditate and think on who God is in this present circumstance, maybe he can remember who God has been to him in the past. The the songs he sung in the dark nights of years past. Maybe he's not getting comfort now, but maybe he can get comfort by remembering those old times where he's remembered God. And God's been there for him. But it seems like even that, He's asking, let me remember that. Let my heart have that. But it seems like he's not even able to get comfort out of that. It still keeps aching. Nothing changes. And the pressure keeps mounting on his soul. Do you know how, to pr- Do you know how a pressure cooker works? I'm going to try and explain it, and if I'm wrong, you can tell me afterwards. But I looked up some YouTube videos and, to actually see. Pressure cooker is generally used to cook food faster. You know, a cro- different from a crock pot that just has a lid on top and it's like eight hours. This is like a pressurized top, airtight seal around the lid of the co- cooker that changes and keeps the air pressure inside. Now, normally, if you're gonna boil water in a regular pot, or any time you try and boil water, once the water reaches that boiling point, it hits a temperature, 100 degrees Celsius, and it stays constant in there. It won't raise any higher in temperature after the boiling point. But in a pressure cooker, where the pressure is changed inside for some kind of wizardry that I don't understand, (laughs) it takes longer for the water to boil. And it doesn't boil until a higher boiling point of a temperature like 120 degrees. And then it stays constant there. So because of the pressure, higher temperature, faster cooking. But eventually, unless you wanna have an explosion in your kitchen, the pressure needs to be released somehow. And if it's not vented at the proper time, it can come too much, and you can have a 911 call in your hands. It seems like Asaph is getting to that point. And the next few verses here, from verse 7 to verse 9, are Asaph's release of the pressure that he's feeling on his soul through the practice of lament look at it again verse 7 will the lord spurn forever and never again be favorable has his steadfast love forever ceased are his promises at an end for all time has god forgotten to be gracious has he in anger shut up his compassion what's asaph doing here is asaph just being a like a whiny child no, Asaph is very deliberately and thoughtfully, reverently, and humbly complaining before God. These are not random questions here. Each of these points is a very targeted and deliberate critique of Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34 verse 6 could have been one of the earliest creeds in the Jewish religion. In that passage, Yahweh is on Mount Sinai with Moses. And Moses asks to see his glory and Yahweh says, I will let my goodness pass before you. He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. He walks past. Moses sees his back and there the Lord proclaims his name for the first time. Exodus 34, verse 6, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, verse 6 represents the core tenets of the Jewish faith. But Asaph is so burdened in his troubles that he can't see God doing any of it. And this lament is a point-by-point critique aimed at the bedrock of his faith. Don't forget who it is that's writing this. King David was the man God chose after his own heart who did all his will, the sweet psalmist of Israel who wrote a large swath of all the psalms. And when David wanted a number two to be able to share his heart, to be able to lead his people in worship, David chose Asaph. The number two worship leader who wrote songs of worship and led a nation in true worship of God can't see God being true to himself. And he wonders if God has just forgotten who he was. The core tenets of his faith are rocked. Is God's favor gone? Is it ceased? Has they ended? Has he forgotten? Has it shut up? Is all that's left his anger? Isaph isn't being a whiny child. There's a reverence and a humility to this. And it seems like his questions are really marked by grief. Less of anger maybe is my tone conveyed and maybe more like, has God's just character run out? Is it past the expiration date? I'm stretching out my arms. Is God's right hand atrophied? Like Asaph, Those who've attained the highest summits of the faith, Elijah, John the Baptist, Abraham, have also gone through the deepest doubt and grief. Is God truly for me? Could he actually be against me? There's a wisdom to lament that allows us to traverse into the dark depths of our grief and still be tethered in hope back up in the place where the light is? Is lament a regular practice in your Christian habits when the circumstances merit it? Or do you just keep allowing the pressure build until you explode? Why do so many of us Avoid or neglect getting to the place where we practice what the scripture tells us we should for our good. I think I think we many of us can't practice lament because of various ways in which we're tangled up in pride. We'd prefer to be self-reliant. So we won't admit when we're actually losing traction. We'd prefer to maintain an image of ourselves or a status quo... So we won't admit weakness, and God forbid, we'll never express vulnerable emotions before others, let alone before God. And if this is the attitude that you have that subtly prevents you from choosing to lament when you should be, whether it's conscious or unconscious, avoiding lament when the circumstance calls for it, Is a choice to neglect the transforming nature of the gospel. We're prone to rely on ourselves, but the gospel says, apart from me, you can do nothing. By ourselves, you are not a branch connected to the vine, you're a twig that can't bear fruit and might as well just be burned. We're prone to avoid expressions of weakness and vulnerability, but your Savior says, My power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Christian, if you find yourself in your place where it feels like you can't pray anymore and the pressure is building up, don't avoid it. Don't neglect it lay it out before the Lord. Find space before God and vent your complaints before him with humility and reverence in a way that's tethered back where the light is. So Asaph laments. Okay, is he fixed now? Can you move on? Well, uh, no. I <laughs> wish it was that easy. He's still exhausted, he's still grieved, but it seems like what lament does for him in this progress is he finally has a clear head. He finally has a clear mind. After regressing from vigor into fatigue and then from assurance into grief, he's now at a place where he can make a choice and he chooses to ascend into hope. how does he make that choice? If you've come to a place where you feel like you've prayed all you pray and you can't pray anymore, this is the choice that you may have to make. Asaph chooses to remember God's proven character. When you feel like you can't pray anymore, choose to remember. God's proven character. We see him remember two things from verse 10 to 15 and then from verse 16 to verse 20. First, we see that he remembers the Lord's proven work. Verse 10 to verse 15, it says, "'Then I said, I will appeal to this, "'to the years of the right hand of the Most High. "'Yes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord.'" Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. Okay, now this is interesting. He says he's going to remember and remember and meditate but don't we remember, didn't he already do this before? And didn't it, like, not work? Right? So is this, like, some kind of, like, naive perseverance? Like, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Or is it some kind of, like, foolishness? Like, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing but expecting a different result. What is he, act, what is he doing here? Asaph is wisely adjusting the scope of his meditations. At first, in verse 3, he is trying to meditate on God intervening here and now. Then, in verse 6, he's trying to meditate on what God had done for him in the past. Both of those wearied him. Both of those kept chafing him. This time, he appeals to to God's history alone. He's not thinking about his present troubles. He's not clinging on to past comforts. He's he's detaching himself. And he's just focusing on God. And even before he remembers the works that God has done, he remembers the worker who performed them. So far in this psalm, we see... uh, Asaph, address his creator as God, God, Lord. Femi helpfully recognized that for the first, when he was reading it, uh, Femi helpfully helped us recognize in the reading of the scripture that it isn't until verse 11, that's the first time that he recognizes and addresses him as Yahweh. Previously, he addresses him as Elohim, just a uh, supernatural divine being. He addresses him as Adonai, Lord Master. But here, after lament, he recognizes him as Yahweh. His proper name, his personal name, his covenant name, the Lord. And there's more to a name than just a name. A name of a well-known person comes with a gravity to it, a weight to it. What do you think of when you hear the names Queen Elizabeth, Bill Gates, Michael Jordan? A name isn't just a name, a name is a reputation. And after giving full vent in complaint against God that his character may have been neglected and expired, Asaph then remembers the Lord's name. And this starts to seem to settle his heart, quiet his spirit, and lift the fog he remembers this is a personal god interacting personally with real people in history so what does then he remember what god has done well he heaps up starting at verse 13 phrase after phrase synonym after synonym meditating on the ancient wonders of god What he's done is holy, it's mighty, it's wondrous. And then he remembers the audience who has seen the works of God. He remembers the peoples, verse 14. Peoples likely referring to the nations around them who clearly saw all Yahweh did and who themselves had their false idols and gods, but the works of gods showed to the nations that there is no God like Yahweh. And then he remembers that there's a particular people who observed it and what he did with them. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. He remembers the heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham, the special recipients of the redeeming work of God. Personal people, Who received a special grace from a personal God? It's kind of easy to get desensitized to the news, isn't it? Journalists know this. And they have ways to try and pull you in to actually make you care. They call these like human interest stories, right? So the news doesn't just tell you about the flood. Hey, buddy. personal things that grab your attention (laughs) (laughs) journalists know that we can be desensitized to the news so they have human interest stories they don't just tell you that a flood happened they then play 911 calls of the family who's on their roof stranded and begging for a helicopter to come because everything they had in a moment was just swept away they don't just tell you the facts of the new government stimulus, they interview a family in their home and they show you the empty shelves and the struggles that they're having to keep be able to keep the lights on. Human interest stories help viewers to draw a personal connection and actually care. Now interestingly, the psalmists often have ways of addressing the nation of Israel. They can call them the Israelites, they can call them uh, the tribes of Israel. But here, after remembering the Lord and his personal name as a personal God, he addresses his ancestors by their personal names too. Jacob and Joseph. And he's tr- He's seeming, as he remembers God's history, to maybe be able to draw himself into that story. Okay, if a personal God, personally connected with real people, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph, Asaph? When it seemed like he couldn't pray anymore, Asaph remembered God's proven character. And when he remembered what God had done in history, a real God to a real people, he couldn't scrutinize it anymore. He couldn't criticize it anymore. He couldn't complain because it was unmistakable, undeniable. The Lord is true to his name. And maybe he can do it again. You may not be able to see how God can intervene in your life and in your circumstances. If possible, Christian, like Asaph, meditate on the name of the Lord in a way that detaches yourself from the circumstances. Asaph went to the most critical point of God's redeeming intervention. In their history, the Red Sea, we must go to the most critical point of God's intervention in our history, and that's the cross. Remember the message of the cross, for I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Christian, do you remember? Do you know what that means for who you are? For, what, for how that's resulted, for your position before God? 2 Corinthians 5.21 he who, For our sake, he who knew no sin became our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And now in him, Christian, do you know who you are? Ephesians chapter 2 says, For God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we are dead in our sins, he made us alive together with him in Christ. For by grace, you are saved through faith. Look back to what God has done and it can lift the cloud and draw us into what God can do now. Asaph keeps pulling this thread in the next stanza and it leads him to a tone that turns from more factual to worshipful if you prayed all that you can pray choose to remember the lord's redeeming work and choose to remember the lord's proven guidance look at verse 16 and verse 20 it says when the waters saw you o god when the waters saw you they were afraid indeed the deep trembled the skies poured out water the clouds poured out water the skies gave forth thunder your arrows flashed on every side the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay, so Asaph jumps into this like poem. And i got to be honest, it's kind of weird to read for modern ears. Like, there's this, like, contest he's describing between, like, God and, like, waters. And he's speaking about the waters like they're a person. Waters that hear, waters that see, waters that tremble, waters that shake. Like, what is happening here? As we read on, we start to see through the metaphor and realize that this contest is the Lord and the Red Sea. Do you remember what happened when God had brought his people out of Egypt, but they stood there at the Red Sea. 400 years of slavery had finally ended. They would left, but they were trapped. And it was chaos all around. The sea on one side, the army of Egypt chasing them down on the other side. They thought they were doomed. But miraculously, God divided the sea in two so the entire nation could walk over on dry ground. And once the entire nation had passed through, the Lord removed his hand from the waters and the army was drowned. Now if you read back in the account of the story in Exodus 14, it doesn't seem like there's any storm, like there's no whirlwind, there's no thunder, there's it doesn't it doesn't even look like it's raining, like so what's Asaph talking about here? Well, throughout the Psalms, the poets often use water as a metaphor for uncontrollable chaos. You can see that in Psalm 46, Psalm 93, and here. The point that Asaph is trying to draw is that even when it seems like there's chaos all around, God's in control over it. And in the perplexing mystery of his providence, he shepherds his people into and through that very chaos this is the point that he's making this is what God's done in the past maybe that can be what God does now and then very abruptly the psalm just ends kind of seems not helpful like Okay, Asaph, did you resolve what was in your heart? Are you still exhausted? Are you still grieved? Do you still have doubts? What happened? Give us something so we can have hope ourselves. Actually, the abrupt ending is the point. Have you ever heard of the turn of phrase, um, the penny dropped? I heard it a lot before, and it always frustrated me because I had no idea what anyone was talking about. I think Brad said it one time in a recent elders meeting, and I was just like, I need to figure out what this means. And then I looked and nowadays, I only really see vending machines when I'm at like Wonderland. And it's for like a Dasani that costs $8. And the only way I can buy it is if I like tap my card. But apparently back in the olden times, there were vending machines that took real coins. And apparently, back in the dark ages, you could actually buy something with a penny out of a vending machine, maybe like a gumball or a candy. But these old machines were very clunky and mechanical rather than digital, so that penny that you would put in it would often get stuck. And the thing that you wanted wouldn't come out. And then you'd do what any junior high boy would do, and you'd just kick it, and you kick it until the penny drops. And then you get the thing. It seems like for Asaph, all of a sudden, the penny drops. And he gets it. Remember, he began by expressing great assurance that God would hear him. I cry aloud, he will hear me. And then very quickly he faints. And then when he remembers God's work in the past and then he remembers God's guidance now, and it clicks. There's chaos, but maybe it's not out of the chaos. Maybe it's in, and maybe it's through, and maybe that's how God will deliver me now. This is the point of the abrupt ending. The trouble can't be resolved until we are prepared To make a choice will I remember God's proven character will I remember the work of Yahweh will I remember the way that he guides will I follow the unseen footsteps you led your path was through the great waters yet your footprints were unseen you led your people like a flock through the hand of Moses and Aaron. The Lord redeemed them with a mighty hand. The Lord shepherded by them by Moses and Aaron. They walked by faith back then. And now Asaph is asking this question that we need to ask ourselves too. Will we? In the book of Hebrews, we meet a community of Christians. A community of Christians who have grown faint. Their vigor was lost, and they were filled with doubt and grief. They were Jewish converts to Christianity, but they were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen. And the emotional pain within the persecution bred an intellectual doubt that made them think, maybe we should just leave this whole Jesus thing and go back to Moses. But they were reminded through the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses, and they must listen to him. They were reminded that Jesus was a greater priest than he than Aaron, who sacrificed the offering of his own life once for all so they could be fully and finally redeemed. You may be at the end of yourself. You may have prayed all the prayers that you can pray. But like Asaph, having come to the end of ourselves, regressed into grief, lamenting then, we can ascend out in hope if we make a choice to remember God's proven character, his redeeming work, and his perplexing shepherding guidance in Christ. Will you follow the unseen steps in and through the chaos that's ahead of you. Let's pray together now.